Hello and welcome back to the Long History Shot. I'm Ranjit and you're listening to another episode from the series on Ashok. If you have been following the earlier episodes in this series, then by now you would have a fairly good idea of Ashok's story as per the Buddhist legends and also what archaeological evidence tells us about his transformation. In this episode, I'll talk about Ashok's last set of edicts inscribed on majestic pillars that tell us not only of the Mauryan king's ideas but also serve as an example of stone art at its peak in India's art history. After initially experimenting with inscriptions on large rock surfaces, Ashok embarked on a project that was unparalleled and to an extent would continue to remain so. Ashok chose a new medium for inscribing his third and last set of edicts. These were sandstone pillars quarried from the sandstone mines in Chunhar and Pabosa on the banks of the Yamuna. Rising up to 30 feet above the ground, weighing up to 50 tons and capped with extraordinarily beautiful capitals carved into animal forms like lions, elephants or bulls, these pillars invoke awe and appreciation even today wherever they have survived. The abacus or the base of the capitals was decorated with carved animals that ran along the perimeter, echoing the importance given to all sentient forms in Buddhism. The smooth pillars supporting these capitals shone with a gold-like luster. The mystery behind the polishing technique of the pillars and the capitals remains unsolved even today. Unlike the rock edicts that have been discovered all across the subcontinent, from Kandahar in the northwest to Odisha in the east, and from Kashmir in the north to Karnataka in the south. The pillars seem to have been designed for a much smaller geography. Their gigantic form and weight would have made it impossible to transport them over the natural mountain walls that rose beyond the Narmada River in the south and the Sindhu River in the northwest. Therefore, the pillars have found their home on the plains of northern India, where transporting them by river and over short distances on the flat topography would have been practically easier. While not every pillar that Ashok erected may have been discovered, and not every discovered pillar has remained intact either, it is still remarkable that a reasonable number of them have survived in a form that has enabled archaeologists to read the original edicts inscribed on them and uncover the philosophy that inspired Ashok's ambitious mission. Other ancient rulers may not have been as fortunate. For example, the first Chinese ruler to call himself an emperor also issued a number of edicts on rock surfaces located on high mountains. However, Emperor Shi Huangdi of the Qin dynasty has only one surviving rock edict as his legacy, while his other edicts have come to the present through history written by succeeding dynasties, who may have added their own biases and embellishments to the original content. The survival of these monumental pillars can be contributed, ironically, to a positive example of ignorance. The original Brahmi script of Ashok turned illegible within just a few hundred years of it being inscribed. As newer forms of Brahmi developed, such as the Gupta Brahmi that is found on one of his pillars, inscribed by a later Gupta king. As Brahmi progressed into Nagari, 
that found more wider currency across the subcontinent before it too was replaced by the political stronger Persian. Ashok's edicts inscribed on these majestic columns lost their meaning and with it also their history. Common people developed their own theories and fantasies around the origins of these gigantic figures in the absence of any explanation. Obviously, a giant pillar standing without explanation in the middle of one's village could only have belonged to a giant or to a god. Therefore, in most places, the pillars gained association with the Shivalinga or the phallic symbol attributed to the Hindu god Shiva. While in some cases, such as the pillar discovered by Feroz Shah Tughlaq, a 14th century Delhi sultan, the towering column was named Bhim Ki Lat or Bhim's Club after the Hulk-like hero from the Mahabharat epic. Curiously, this problem was not limited to the less literate. Even learned Brahmins who served in the courts of the Sultan had no explanation for these inscriptions. In fact, when Feroz Shah Tughlaq inquired with his Brahmins, partly out of fear and largely out of ignorance, they too backed the local legends to give these pillars their mythical origin in the Mahabharat. The Tughlaq emperor was so impressed by the pillars and their legends that he installed one atop the Jami Masjid on his palace grounds as a holy minar or column and another in his hunting lodge close to Delhi. Another Ashokan pillar that now stands secure and out of public view in the military cantonment of the Ilabad fort has been quite fortunate, similar to the Tughlaq pillar. Although its original location is believed to have been Merat, again along the banks of the Yamuna, this pillar was moved at some point in history to Ilabad. Some historians believe this may have been at the will of the Mughal prince Jahangir, who had declared his capital in Ilabad, from where he rebelled against his father, the ruling emperor Akbar. Jahangir's own edict is inscribed on the pillar, and the way it cuts into the Ashokan edicts is quite telling of the fact that no living person was any longer able to read these ancient inscriptions. This pillar has multiple edicts, including the Gupta edict referred earlier for the Gupta Brahmi script. There is also the edict that talks of Ashok's wife, Karuvaki, donating mango groves and other facilities in the nearby region. And then the edict that warns nuns and monks of punishments if they were to cause a rift in the Buddhist Sangha. This pillar reads like a history textbook, documenting glimpses of Indian history from 3rd century before the Common Era, all the way up to the 17th century of the Common Era. Not all pillars were as lucky though. The one in Sarnath, which once held the beautiful lion capital, had already been destroyed into multiple fragments by the time the British archaeologist Alexander Cunningham had it excavated and restored. Similarly, the capitals atop most of the surviving pillars served as target practice for ignorant artillery units that passed through the towns where they stood innocently. The Ashokan pillar in Varanasi deserves an entire novel on its own. Given the number of times it changed ownership as political tides tossed it from one empire to another, 
it incited communal riots in the city of Varanasi more than a few times, until finally religious zeal exceeded respect for its legend, and the pillar was pulled down and broken to pieces by an angry mob. A six-feet surviving fragment, sheathed in copper casing, now forms the centerpiece of the inner chambers of the famous Kashi Vishwanath Temple of Varanasi. Even Ferocia's second pillar that crowned his hunting lodge met a similar fate when an explosion in a nearby British ammunition depot blew the pillar to fragments. These were later put together by a succeeding British officer and the glued-up column now stands metres away from the Hindu Rao Hospital in Delhi. Ashok's columns were not just examples of workmanship, but as the noted Indologist Harry Falk summarises in his magnum opus, Ashokan Sites and Artifacts, the pillars of Ashok seem to appear out of the blue. There are no predecessors anywhere on the subcontinent. The pillars have a certain air of perfection. They are admirably polished. Their tapering gives them elegance. Their proportions are well-balanced. The threefold capitals have been designed and produced with a quality never to be reached again by later copyists. It requires some skill and experience to produce such pieces of art. Another sort of experience is needed to transport them from the quarry to their place of erection. And it requires still further expertise to erect the pillars weighing from 8.6 to 51 tons. And finally, to top them with capitals weighing a further 2 tons. Only an Indologist like Harry Falk could have summarized it so well. Such was the architectural, sculptural and logistical excellence achieved in the Mauryan era. Early colonial historians were quick to conclude that these pillars were influenced heavily by Greek or Hellenistic art forms. After all, Ashok himself refers to Seleucid and Greek kings ruling his neighbouring countries, as well as those in faraway Europe and even Egypt. Historical traces of a possible matrimonial alliance between the Mauryan and Seleucid dynasties gave this inference only more credibility. However, historians like John Irwin and A.K. Mitra proved that the influence possibly came from the Achaemenid or Persian culture. Historical ties between India and Persia, owing to trade and border politics, would have ensured a regular interaction on the cultural plane as well. Also, the fall of the Persian Empire after the Greek invasion may have led to an artisan drain, much like today's brain drain, from the devastated Persian Empire of Darius III to the more flourishing Mauryan Empire. We see a similar exodus of artists from Turkey and Iran to the more prosperous Mughal Empire during the reign of Emperor Akbar. The well-respected art historian Ananda Kumar Swami has also pointed out that the lotus and palmet decorations visible in Ashokan art have their origins in Near Eastern and Egyptian motifs. Naturally, there is a great deal of opposition by some Indian academicians who are not in favour of this foreign influence theory, although they are equally or more lacking in evidence to support their claims of a completely indigenous design. This question continues to puzzle present-day historians. 
and is unlikely to be resolved fully unless new evidence emerges on either side of the argument. Art historians and archaeologists have also tried to explain the reason for choosing pillars as a medium. The phallic symbolism of erecting pillars is visible in nearly every culture across the world, be it the Egyptian obelisks that now stand in the squares of Rome or those in the Persian ruins of Persepolis. Closer home in India, the Qutub Minar is another example of a king marking his victory by erecting a tower that could be seen from miles away. These symbols serve no functional purpose, but they do serve a larger symbolic purpose of proclaiming one's power, glory and ascent in newly conquered territories or claiming a place for one's dynasty in the annals of history. This obsession has continued even into modern times with a visible race between regional and world leaders to prove that my statue is taller than yours. Ashok, on the other hand, does not make any mention of his dynastic lineage, neither of his military conquests, with the exception of the Kalinga War, which he uses as a context for his own transformation to a peaceful ruler. As per the late historian A.K. Mitra, who published some interesting perspectives on Ashokan art in the 1930s, the choice of a pillar follows an even older Indian tradition of erecting Dwajasthamba or a flag staff. The Dwajasthamba was meant to act as a protecting entity. However, no pillars of the dimensions and quality as Ashok commissioned have been discovered from times predating him. So we can assume for now that he was the first Indian ruler to conceptualize the use of pillars to publish edicts. Ashok commissioned the minor and major rock edicts between the 8th and 12th year of his reign, after which there is a long interval of almost 14 years before he inscribes a new set of seven edicts on the pillars. There is no explanation by him for the long interval, though he does refer to the content of his rock edicts in more than one place in the pillar edicts. Was he occupied during this period with the mounting challenges of managing a kingdom so widespread as two-thirds of the subcontinent? Did he undertake during this period the task of spreading the Buddha's word with the same zeal as described in the legends, building hundreds of stupas and monasteries across the subcontinent? Or was he travelling to all the borders of his kingdom to confer with neighbouring rulers to implement his grand plan of annexation by Dhamma rather than by violent invasion? Or was this particular year, the 26th year of his rule, telling him that he was facing a mortal challenge and it was time to issue a new and probably last set of edicts in a medium that would immortalize his memory and achievements? Whatever the reason, Ashok did invest significantly in this project, both materially and spiritually. Not all 13 sides of Ashokan pillars have the same edicts. At some places such as Kaushambi, the pillar bears no inscriptions at all, while the pillars in Ilabad, Sarnath and Sanchi have a common edict inscribed on them. This edict is also known as the Schism Edict where Ashok warned Buddhist nuns and monks from creating a rift in the Buddhist Sangha. 
द पिलर्स इन लुम्बिनी एंड निगली सागर इन नेपाल रिकॉर्ड अशोक्स विजिट टू दीज बुद्धिस्ट पिलग्रमेज साइट्स द ईडिक्स दैट फॉर्म द कोर ऑफ आर डिस्कशन आर हवेवर द सेवन पिलर ईडिक्स दीज आर फाउंड ओनली इन सिक्स लोकेशंस इंक्लूडिंग इलाहाबाद लोडिया नंदनगढ़ लोडिया अरारज रामपुरवा and the two transplanted sites in delhi if you google the locations of the pillars at araraj nandangarh and rampurwa you can see for yourself that these sites are on a route that can be traced from patna or erstwhile pataliputra to the buddha's place in kapilavastu lumbini therefore the locations of these pillar sites are not as random or without any explanation Also the original sites of the two Delhi pillars are in Topra Haryana and Meerut Uttar Pradesh which may not hold any significance for Buddhism particularly but these are towns that fall in the Doab or the delta region formed by the Ganga and the Yamuna which historically have been the most prosperous and therefore strategic locations for any empire built in northern India Amongst all pillars only the Firoshakotla pillar has all seven edicts while the rest only have six though i am tempted to go through all the seven edicts here given that there is a fair degree of repetition in the first four edicts let's instead look at the three distinct themes that are laid out in the seven edicts which sum up Ashok's parting message to humanity the first theme that occurs in the seven pillar edicts is that of dispensing justice given that much of ashok's empire lay beyond the reach of his core administration in pataliputra he speaks of having given autonomy to bureaucrats called rajukas the title rajuka comes from the sanskrit word rajju meaning a rope the rajukas may have been provincial governors or revenue officers since the rajju or rope was practically used for measuring land boundaries he gives a free hand to the rajukas in the edict but at the same time sets the expectation that they should realign their policies to reflect the principles of ashok's dhamma for this purpose he also speaks of having appointed dhamma mahamatras or a special class of supervisors who would ensure that the rajukas were working well within the defined boundaries of rule by dhamma This included granting an appeal period of 3 days to all those sentenced to death. In these 3 days they could present an appeal for life through their relatives or representatives and failing to have the means to do so they could use this time to repent for their crimes either by fasting or donating to the needy. Ashok compares the rajukas to expert nurses whom a mother may entrust her children for caretaking. Once again Ashok tries to establish the parallel of a father or a mother figure to his subjects rather than an imposing and fierce ruler to whom they should bow in fear This matches with the obligations of an upasak king as specified by the Upasak Shila Sutra in Buddhism The second and more commonly known theme from the pillar edicts is Ashok's explicit policy of non-violence and prevention of cruelty towards animals most of us are somewhat aware of the contents of this fifth pillar edict which gives an interesting list of animals 
In this extraordinary edict, Ashok gives a specific list of wild animals, including birds, aquatic animals, and even insects, that should not be harmed. It is important to note that none of these animals listed here are predatory beasts that may have threatened human life, but mostly limited to vulnerable species like porcupines, tortoises, ducks, deer, doves, bats, eels, squirrels, parrots, and even ants. There are some names that we haven't been able to decipher, such as the Ganga Puputaka, which some historians believe might have been a reference to the Gangetic dolphin. It is certainly a unique edict that leaves nothing to the reader's judgment and is specific to the point of listing actual species that should be left unharmed. Ashok's grant of life extends to even those animals who do not necessarily live in the wild. Animals that occur commonly in rural or agricultural areas are also covered by this edict. He specifically mentions that all chatushpada or quadrupeds that are neither edible nor used for labor should be left unharmed. As for domesticated animals that were either beasts of burden or livestock, he again mentions common acts of cruelty such as castration of bulls or rams to be avoided. In the case of edible animals such as fish, fowl and sheep, Ashok mentions the days of the month or year when they should not be sold. This perhaps was the middle path that he chose rather than issuing an absolute decree banning the slaughter of animals, given that a large population would have been dependent on fish and other domesticated animals for their source of nourishment. This edict of Ashok could not be more relevant than in the present times, when issues caused by mass domestication and consumption of livestock, as well as destruction of forest cover and wild animals, threatens the future of the human species itself. An interesting directive in the fifth edict is to avoid killing insects residing within dry grass or husk. This may have been provoked by the act of humans setting fire to farmland for land preparation or to forests for expanding agricultural area. Even today, farmers across the world are being advised to avoid using fire as a means of removing weeds from farmland as this adversely affects the fertility of the soil and also damages the environment. At the same time, burning forests is hazardous not only to the ecosystem but also to our environment. Smoke clouds created by burning palm plantations in Indonesia and Malaysia are known to have affected populations even as far as neighboring countries. Not much seems to have changed about human ignorance from the time of Ashok. The royal protection to all living beings appears also as a continuation of the pledge that he made in Major Rock Edict No. 1, which was to reduce or completely abstain from slaughter of any animals in the royal kitchen. Also in the Major Rock Edict No. 8, he mentions replacing hunting trips with pilgrimages. Fourteen years later, Ashok seems to have made this part of policy itself. The third theme which flows through almost all the seven pillar edicts is Ashok's inquiring tone with regards to the Dhamma. 
In the first four edicts, he reiterates how Dhamma is important not only to find fulfillment in this life, but also in the afterlife. He therefore instructs those responsible to care for, legislate to, provide for and protect the people as per the demands of the Dhamma. He upholds the merit in acknowledging one's sins or crimes instead of only counting one's good deeds. He recounts the Dhamma edicts that he had inscribed 14 years ago and how since then he has made every effort to take the message not only to those close to him but also those who are far and even those who belong to different sects. In the Pillar Edicts, he shares that like kings of the past, he too has created comforts and facilities for his people, such as rest houses, wells, and planting trees to provide shade for the travellers. However, he clarifies that this is not enough to make people truly happy. For that, he had the Dhamma inscriptions issued, and his administrators worked with people of all sects, such as the Buddhists, the Brahmins, the Ajivik, and the Jains, whom he calls the Nigrantha as well. He shares that he and his entire family are now engaged in the philanthropic activities of giving away to the needy and the learned, a tradition that seems to have been carried forward even by present-day Silicon Valley empire builders. Lastly, Ashok explains that he believes change will not come only by issuing Dhamma regulations, but rather through persuasion. Of these two means, he says in the seventh pillar edict, of little avail have been the Dhamma regulations, while by persuasion has been achieved much more. Quite astonishing, isn't it, to hear an ancient emperor recommending persuasion in place of penalty. Ashok's seventh edict is the longest edict he ever issued, breaking off more than a few times and again starting off with the customary third-person opening lines of Devanam Piya Piyadasi Evam Ah, as if the aging emperor was attempting to express all that he could in this single and perhaps last edict. Wherever there are stone pillars or stone slabs, thereon this Dhamma script is to be engraved, so that it may long endure. Now for this purpose has this been engraved, that it may last as long as my sons and great-grandsons shall live, and as long as the moon and the sun shall shine, and that men may practice it as instructed. By practicing thus, happiness in this life and the next is indeed attained. This Dhamma script has been caused to be written by me when crowned 27 years. With these concluding lines ends one of the grandest yet equally noble and sensitive series of edicts ever issued by a monarch in human history. And with it also comes to an end this series on Ashok. I hope you enjoyed listening to these episodes and also formed your own interpretations and views along the way. Please feel free to send me your views, feedbacks and comments on the Facebook page or by emailing me 
at lhswithranjit@gmail.com. I'll be back soon with another interesting theme from the ever-expanding human story. Until then, keep listening, keep exploring.